0: Welcome to This Is Your Life with Michael Hyatt, where our goal is to give you the clarity, courage, and commitment you need to do what matters. My name is Michelle Kashat. I'm your co-host today, and I'm sitting in the studio with Michael Hyatt. Hey there, Michael. Hey, Michelle. But we have a little surprise for you today, because we don't have just Michael Hyatt in the studio. We all also have best-selling author Greg McEwen, author of Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less.
1: Uh, it's great to be with you.
0: It's good to have you here, Greg. Now, I was going to do this big, huge, um, profound introduction, including fabulous credentials from your bio and all kinds of information, but the truth is, is that one month ago, you were in Norway because, (laughs) because you were invited to speak at a conference by the Prince Prince of
1: Norway. The Prince of Norway. Exactly. <laughs> and
0: honestly, that kind of trumps everything else in your bio.
1: It's my saving grace. It's the only thing I actually have to offer. Uh, it saves me from a rather, uh, you know, lackluster b- bio. So uh... You're
2: almost royalty.
0: Yes, you are. I mean, I read your bio. I was intimidated. But then when I found out about the Prince of Norway, I mean, I'm like choking with fear now. Yeah.
1: <laughs> you know, Norway was fantastic. I do have to say this. I absolutely love the people in Norway uh, and found uh, examples of essentialists uh, right there. Really? Yes.
0: That's wonderful yes the message is really getting around so before we before we talk any more about the book i really want you as, as as succinctly as you can to describe kind of the heart of this book
1: oh well i was going to tell you a story first can i tell you a story first tell
0: a story first and then we'll get into it uh, okay
1: so this is a this is where it all came from okay. and i will get to the question that you okay, asked you um so it all started uh, 15 years ago when I was at law school in England. Hmm. And I, I would have just continued on that path, but a, a friend of mine sent me uh, tickets to come to his wedding. Mm-hmm. And so I came to uh, to the US, and someone in passing said to me, look, if you do decide to stay in America, then you should. And they gave a set of things I should do. And so what I did is I spent the next 20 minutes thinking about that question. What would you do if you could do anything? Uh-huh. Uh, and up to that point, I'd sort of felt logically like you could choose to do something different. But in the end, uh, emotionally, I didn't feel like I could do something different. Mm. And so if you don't emotionally feel like you can do something different, then mm-hmm. uh, then you don't really have a choice. Mm-hmm. And so when I looked at the piece of paper in my hands of all these things, these brainstorms and arrows, what I noticed was not so much what was on the list, uh-huh. uh, but what was not on the list. Uh. Law school was not on the list. <laughs> and as I already mentioned, I was at law school. So what do you do? and i decided i better call the 15 digit number back to england
3: uh-huh
1: and uh, my mother answered uh, perhaps fortunately <laughs> and so she listened for a while and then she, finally she says i think you better talk to dad okay so let's pause for a second so what would you say to your son after all that time all that money all that effort what would you say so are I'm on the phone kidding to you me? that's what you say yeah are like, you let's kidding play me? this out for a moment well yeah. i i, I yeah, no i'm not kidding you i i really i'm thinking about this i think maybe law school's not the thing Son, aren't you just maybe going through a phase? <laughs> well, I think I am going through a phase, but it might be, it might be, it might be a good get, phase. Can
0: we get the phase to pass a little quickly?
1: <laughs> well, yes, because I just want to get, get out of this. This isn't the uh-huh. thing for me. What makes you think that? Something else. I want to do something else. Hmm. I want to teach and write. Okay, well, this is good. This is, uh, this is, uh, this is not what he said. <laughs> <laughs> what he said, and, and, and just some context. For my whole life, what he had said to me is one thing. He would said, keep your options open. You know oh. go to law school that's excellent that keeps you keeps your options open uh-huh. and so this is what I'm expecting he said he said look son, he, after he listens he says uh he says he says you know what I've always told you and you know what I'm mm-hmm. waiting for uh, he says to thine own self be true Hmm. which he'd never said to me in his whole <laughs> life. But but, but then there, because all Englishmen, you know, quote Shakespeare over tea and crumpets for breakfast in the morning, he pulls out a line from Hamlet, you know, Polonius speaking to his son, to thine own self be true. He said, and he followed it up with this phrase. He said, do what is right. Let the consequences follow. Hmm. Wow. This is, this is the moment. Well, he didn't always get it right, but he got it right in That's that moment. That's
0: impressive. That's fantastic.
1: Yes. And... In that little story, I mean, th- there's a few lessons in it, but but among them, it's just, uh, you know, there's two different approaches to life. One is to do sort of everything popular now, everything mm-hmm. you've been doing, stay with it, stay committed, you know, follow through. And the other is do the right thing for the right reasons at the right time.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and in that second philosophy, I, I found in that moment seeds of what I have gone on to, wow. to do.
2: Big difference between those two philosophies.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, totally different. Um, I mean, what was on the piece of paper was basically a question, uh-huh. and the question was: Why do otherwise successful people not break through to the next level?
3: Hmm.
1: Which is a non-trivial question, <clears throat> excuse me, because if you, if, if if we three were to have a race,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, and you won. Which you would. (laughs) (laughs) Michelle would.
0: I'm not so sure about that. So Michelle and then Michael
1: and then me, right? Me 10 yards behind you all. And then we had another race with me uh, starting off 10 yards behind you both at the beginning. Uh Surely you would win a second time. And if we continued doing that, Mm -hmm. you would win again and again and again. And yet what we find is that successful people and teams and companies do not continue in this trajectory. Mm-hmm. And so to me, it's a fascinating question. Why? Mm-hmm. Why don't they break through to the next level?
0: So why do they stay plateaued rather than move yes, ahead?
1: Yes. Why, why do they have this momentum for a time and then it
0: And it just down? kind of
1: stops Yeah. Yeah. So what do you think? What are your thoughts on this question? Um,
2: I, I think that... Oftentimes, the, the very things that look like opportunities later on are the things that distract us and derail us. Yeah. And, and then our opportun- opportunities become the threats.
1: Yeah. But this is... This is a, You've stolen the
2: thunder. I've read your book.
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, but this is exactly the right idea. Um, is, is, that, is that success can become a catalyst for failure if we're not very careful in becoming successful at success uh-huh. because of all the options and opportunities that mm-hmm. come with the things that we're doing. I was just talking to somebody uh, just a couple of days ago and he's describing all of the amazing things that uh-huh. he's doing and has done. And it's consuming every minute of his life. Yes. And so there is no space. It's a mathematical idea, right? It's, there's just no space mm-hmm. to think about what is the very best and highest use of me. You just get consumed at the current level. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the problem is that success can lead to what Jim Collins has called the undisciplined pursuit of more.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: I want you to think about that phrase for a second. The, what What is that? What does the undisciplined pursuit of more look like? Well, Actually, what does it look like for you, Michael? Well, it looks like
2: I become reactive and that by virtue of the fact that I get an invitation to do something or a request to do something, that therefore I must do it. I I forget that I have a choice. I don't have to do everything that I'm invited to do. Right. And uh, so I just keep trying to stuff without trade-off, more stuff into Mm -hmm. my Mm -hmm. life, already packed life. And before long, I have no margin, no space to breathe in.
1: Yeah, I I love that description. And, And one of the things that I've noticed is that over time, the very nature of success is that the opportunities coming to you are the very opportunities a year ago or two years ago you wanted to come to you. Yes. Right. And so so if we just maintain the current level uh, of our expectation of success, we'll keep saying yes to these things because they are exactly what we wanted yep. instead of becoming more and more discerning. And so I've come to believe that people will plateau at exactly the same level as their selectivity plateaus. So okay, Jim, unpack that that's, a bit. I'm going to say that's, yeah, yeah, that's that really the...
0: profound, right there. Say that one more time.
1: Okay. So if you set a certain well, I'll give an example of this. Um, so I co-designed a class at uh, the design school at Stanford called "Designing Life," essentially. Uh, It was uh, one of their new pop-up classes and it turned out to be the most popular uh, requested class and then the most popular afterwards when the feedback came in. So this is great and I loved it. And then uh, they came to me afterwards and said, look, would you like to continue working on this class and maybe even be a faculty member at Stanford as as an option? Well, a year before, that was exactly what I Mm -hmm. wanted to Mm -hmm. do. That's Mm -hmm. why I was interested in pursuing it in the first place. But by the time the opportunity had come... I suddenly didn't feel great about it anymore. Uh, suddenly, and I was in this tensious place of you've got the thing you wanted, but now you're at a point where you ought not to do it anymore. And so I really struggled with that, but I had I, to increase These Those are the, the places
0: where the decisions are hardest.
1: These are, the, de- these are these, the hard decisions. And these
0: are the life-changing, I mean, really, they are course-changing decisions.
1: I think so. Because you are really deciding not just the individual, the, the, not the specific decision that's just come to you. Mm-hmm. You're deciding what- your criteria for, for, for saying yes is mm-hmm. and you're deciding whether your criteria will become more selective mm-hmm. and if you conclude the answer is yes it means that you have uh you know it, it's hard you're saying no to something now but you're doing it so that you can open yourself up to the next level of opportunities uh to pursue
0: but that's saying no is a very difficult, it's a difficult no, because there's other, it feels very risky. Because what if the opportunity, what if opportunities dry up and don't present themselves anymore? Or you think in your mind, what if this is the last time opportunity will come by and I've said no? Or what if this no ends up shutting down other opportunities? And so it feels very risky to say no.
1: I think it's very tough. Uh, I had a friend uh, read Essentialism and they said it should come with a warning uh, that this is the hardest thing you'll ever do. Uh Yes. And... And I knew it was hard when I wrote the book, and I knew that it was countercultural when I wrote it, but I have come to the conclusion it is more difficult and more countercultural than I realized when I was writing it. (laughs) Because the antidote to this problem of the undisciplined pursuit of more is the disciplined pursuit of Mm -hmm. less but better. Mm -hmm. And that language is important, it's a pursuit It's not something you arrive at. It's not something you can check off the list. In fact, there are times I'll do uh, keynotes about essentialism and someone will say afterwards, they'll say, oh, that was great. They'll say, that was such a great reminder. And and actually they're missing the whole point. Yes. Because it's not one more thing. Essentialism is not one more thing. It is the perpetual pursuit. It is the very work of our lives. Mm. To figure out what's important now and to be willing to eliminate anything that isn't answer to that question
2: could you go to the metaphor of the closet that you use in the book because i think whenever i'm trying to explain to people why they should read the book um i just tell that story that you do so beautifully in
1: the book yeah so i mean first of all you know anyone listening or watching right can imagine just think about your closet Mm -hmm. and what does it look like and uh i mean i know how it looks You, you don't touch it you don't think about it you never organize it and still somehow it's pristinely clean with only just the things you love to wear and no clutter in there. Right. Yeah. right? That's no. mine. <laughs> of course not. Of
0: course. Of course not.
1: And then sometimes people think, well, the answer is a larger closet uh, until they get a larger closet and then they realize that is not the problem. Uh, the, the problem is something else mm-hmm. a- and the problem is uh, an, an the undisciplined pursuit of more. And so what happens is that over time, you're putting in, you know, you're putting in these clothes, you're putting in these things. And then when you consider occasionally it's too it's too overwhelming, you say, I'm going to take something off the hanger. No, it's, it's you,
0: to- you, you say you're going to clean your closet and you pull out like one item. Right.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. Right. so
0: but, I'm going to donate this. Right. So, so, so you maybe
1: do it. But, but then the second item, let's say you get to the second item and you go to pull it out. There's something that happens in the process of taking it out. Uh-huh. Uh, that, uh, that actually, it's a, it's an important uh, you know uh, neurological thing. It's uh-huh. called the endowment effect. In the process of taking it out, you become more aware of your uh, the, of your ownership of that item. And, and the problem with the endowment effect is that we overvalue things. We because we own them, we think they're more valuable mm-hmm. than they really are. Uh, and so. Uh, so it means that it goes back on the hanger. Or maybe we use very, un, you know, you know general criteria. Maybe we look at that item and we say, well, maybe I'll be able to fit it again one day. Yes. Or maybe it's going to come back into fashion at some point. And so if, the, if that's the question you ask, the answer is definitely yes. It could come into fashion at some point, somewhere in the future. <laughs> so it goes back on the shelf. Uh-huh. This is a, you know, this is the non-essentialist way to closet, uh-huh. you know, uh, management. The alternative is to say, look, do I absolutely love it? Uh, Is it something I wear often? And if the answer is no to those questions, you know, then eliminate it. it. Uh, And one of the tricks to overcome the endowment effect is to simply ask, if I didn't own it right now, how much would I pay for it today? How hard would I work for it now? So the book is not about closets, as obviously you know. This is simply a metaphor for our the overstuffed lives that we are living today, where you've got so many. In fact, it's not just that we put our own stuff in the closet. It's that other people every day are stuffing things totally. in our closet. Yeah. We clean it out in the morning uh, and then we get back to our closet and it's p- packed full of other people's things. Mm-hmm. Uh, just like, our, I mean, how many times, how many times has your email inbox got longer by the end of the day? Uh-huh. Right. How many times have you found a to-do list longer by the end of the day? Yes. Exactly. How many times have we just lived a life, where, a day where we feel like we've been busy but not productive? hmm uh,
0: Too often.
1: How often do we feel stretched too thin mm-hmm. at work or at mm-hmm. home?
2: So before we get too far afield from this, I want to kind of go back to where we started and you talked about law school, but what was the more immediate thing that led to you wrestling through this and coming to the conclusion? Uh, what was it in your life or in your observation or your work that, that made you see that the answer was what you wrote in the book?
1: there's with every story, there's just different chapters to it. And the first chapter I already mentioned, uh, another chapter um, was more personal and happened not you know, so very long ago, just a, just a few years ago. And what it was, was I was working and um, my wife was expecting one of uh, our daughters. And earlier on in the week, my boss at the time had sent me an email saying, look, if you do uh, you know, Friday would be a very bad time to have this baby uh, because I need you to be at this client, team, client meeting and so on. And I thought they were joking, but sometimes these things have a yes. lingering effect for us. Uh, and it did for me. And so Friday was indeed the day that uh, I daughter was born. As
0: luck would have it. As luck would have it.
1: And instead of, I mean, I was in the hospital, yeah, you know, baby's born, healthy baby. You know, it should have been this absolutely joyous moment uh-huh. that I was focused only on this thing. But actually, I was torn between this client meeting and this sense of pressure and I ought to be there. And and, and so instead of, you know, so with, you know, all the conviction I could uh-huh. muster, I say yes. Uh-huh. Uh, and I go and I'm picked up, you know, at the hospital from my manager at the time, taken to, the, you know, to, the, to this meeting. After the meeting, they said to me, the client will respect you for the choice you made. Look, I don't wow. know if it's true, right? I don't know if that happened. But even if it did, and if, even if some amazing thing had happened uh-huh. from that meeting, surely I had made a fool's bargain.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Right? Mm-hmm. Surely this was not the thing to have done. Mm-hmm. And so that was another sort of catalytic moment for me of, well, first of all, the lesson. The lesson is if you don't prioritize your life, someone else will. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is not <laughs> a neutral game we're playing. But secondly, how is it possible that I allowed my life to be there? How was it possible mm-hmm. I had given so much permission to other people mm-hmm. to feel that this was an acceptable choice to make or the, the right thing to do? And so that was a, one key moment looking back where I said, no, this is not another subject. This is the subject. And I want to really go into this. Did you realize
2: it immediately? Or did it take a while for you as you reflected upon this to come to this awareness that there had to be another way?
1: Yeah, it was a reflection. uh looking back Mm -hmm. uh, so so there's lots of examples through that same period where i found myself being torn between Mm. uh, the things that really mattered and the things that were most were just proximate and so as i look back through the journey when i I found that story again when i thought about that story i thought i mean how how off can you be Uh yeah Uh, how how off track can you get Uh, off
0: track and almost not even realize it's happening like you're almost like a character in somebody else's story. You don't even realize that it's happening.
1: It's a great description. And I think that this is, in lots of ways, what the modern culture is giving us. Uh-huh. So this idea of the undisciplined pursuit of more isn't just an individual thing. It's a cultural thing.
0: It is. I mean, it what is. is the
1: culture of our day? All right. So, so, I mean, so many examples we could give. But think about how people use their phones. Yes. Um, mm-hmm.
0: So... <laughs> We could just do a whole episode. <laughs> we right could do a whole thing on this.
1: We could. So, so um, one of uh, Sean, who is the person who sent me tickets for my wedding, who um, um, works with me now, and uh, he he called me up and he said uh, he said yeah, I I just took email off my phone. That's just as an example. And my first reaction to this was, can you do that? Like, <laughs> it's technically, <really> technically <laughs> is it you it can knock out an email on your phone. <laughs> and, uh, and so I, uh, it took me about 15 minutes to think about what I actually use it for and whether there's a way to work around it. And I took it off. That's the best thing ever. Uh-huh. And then a load of other apps as well, until my phone now is a boring instrument. <laughs> but it just is actually has utility for what i need it for. Mm. Uh-huh. and so instead of it being this constant distraction from the things that matter and this uh, this ever you know uh, tapping presence mm-hmm. in my life there's nothing there. i remember for a couple of weeks afterwards i would um i would still check my phone, you know, pretty Frequently, and there's nothing that there uh, Almost reflexive. A, completely yeah, reflexively. Automatic. Completely habitually. Completely uh, addictively.
0: Which mm-hmm. is, to your point, why this is a disciplined pursuit of less. Because yeah. it's not going to just happen automatically. No, We're almost trained culturally to do something different. We have to do this disciplined pursuit of less. Of less. Mm-hmm. Well, we have so much more. We're going to take a short break, but stick with us. We have much more to come with Bre- Greg McEwen. We'll be right back.
2: As a busy and successful blogger, podcaster, author, speaker, and consultant, I am constantly asked about the tools I use to get it all done. Now, for the first time, I'm gonna pull back the curtain and let you peek inside my toolbox to see the software and hardware I use for everything from blogging and podcasting to productivity, social media, and speaking, plus so much more. You can't buy inside my toolbox, but you can get it for free by subscribing to my free email newsletter. When you subscribe, you'll receive my newest content right in your inbox. You'll never have to worry about missing an important post or update again. To get your free copy of the Inside My Toolbox ebook, visit michaelhyatt.com and enter your name and email address into the form on the page. Don't waste any more time or money using the wrong tools. Sign up today at michaelhyatt.com.
0: All right, we're back, and today we're in the studio with Michael Hyatt and New York Times bestselling author Greg McKeown. We're talking about his book Essentialism, The Disciplined Pursuit of Less. You know, we've spent the first half of this program really talking kind of philosophically about the concept of the book and what really was the impetus behind it, but I kind of want to break it down. So this is what I'm going to ask you. If you were a doctor and you were diagnosing our culture, what's our disease?
1: The disease of non-essentialism is one idea. And the idea is that if you can fit it all in, you can have it all.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And the problem with that idea is it's not true. That's the problem. So it uh, sounds like you'd want that thing. Mm-hmm. And if it was true, then your behavior would be very, uh, you know,
0: predictable. Yeah,
1: uh-huh. You just... Fill your calendar full. You'd sleep less. You'd, uh, you know, you'd be as efficient as you could with every part of that meeting, so you could s- stuff everything in. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, I had somebody come up to me recently and say, "Oh, I'm, uh, you know, I just have slept on average four hours a night for the last two weeks," and they were happy about it. Uh-huh. They were smiling about it because busyness has become this sort of bogus badge of honor. Uh-huh.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and so I think that's the disease. It's an idea that has been sold to us, uh, but it's just a bill of goods.
2: Where does that come from? Is there something psychologically
1: driving that? Well, I think it's really an interesting question. I don't know how how deep we want to go, but I think there's like three generations of this idea actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you've got the Industrial Revolution that uh-huh. uh, that introduced the idea that if you can just create a system that's fast enough and efficient enough, well, you can have these production, factory production, right? Factory production. So we, we want to make whole...
0: it faster and exactly. tighter.
1: and So that as as industrial as the Industrial Revolution, you know, uh, took place, mm-hmm. the organizations we built around them were built on the same kinds of factory yes. assumptions, which actually didn't turn out to be so great for the humans involved. Mm-hmm. And so you. You've got that generation one. Generation two is like after the Second World War. This is what I call panem, which is uh, you know uh, the Latin for circus and bread. Uh, it's that there was this uh, this sort of consumerism movement mm-hmm. uh, as people come back from the Second World War. Was, certainly in the US, there was uh, financial success uh, from the war uh, and and also just a desire for being distracted from this terrible experience that had discombobulated the whole world. So that was phase two. And phase three is the last 10 years. This hyper-connected. Uh, we went from hmm. being connected to hyperconnected. And in that phase, it's not just information overload anymore. It's opinion overload. Wow. That's a different challenge. Uh, this is really a lot of people that get a vote in our lives. Uh, and and permission
0: think, in our, that we are giving randomly, uh, you know, without consideration, permission to. Yeah, indiscriminately.
1: It's, 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 actually, it's exactly so. So anyway, this is the disease. The disease is, uh, if you can fit it all in, you can have it all.
0: And it's not true. So now now that we know the disease, and it's I mean, it's powerful, I mean, I honestly oh. think it's a terminal disease. I mean, we yeah. cannot continue at this place. So what's the cure?
1: Well, I got a story. Okay. Um, Somebody that was on both sides of this problem. So first of all, true story, uh, uh, executive in Silicon Valley. And he's doing terrific work, focused work, you know, space to think and create and all of that. But then his company gets purchased by a larger, more bureaucratic firm. And he's in this other company uh, and he wants to be a good citizen. He wants to fit it all in. He wants Mm -hmm. to say yes to every meeting. And he does, but he finds that his stress is going up as the quality of his work is going down. He thinks for a while to leave the company, but then he he, he talks to somebody and they say, look, what you really need to do is hold a personal quarterly offsite. You need to create some space to think. Uh And he does that. And as he does it, he realizes, actually, I want to be at this company, but I want a different approach. And so he says, I'm going to retire in role. And so now he's much more selective about what he does. Uh And he finds two things happen. The quality of his life goes up at home. He said, I got my life back. Uh, phone goes off at a certain time every, every night, uh, eats dinner with his wife, goes to the gym, gets his life back. But what he also got was the the regeneration uh, that that new approach gave him to have space to contribute better at work as well. And so at work, uh, by the end of that year, his performance evaluations had gone up and he ended that Mm. year with one of the largest bonuses of his whole career. Wow. So the key to the whole story is not saying no. Didn't write a book, incidentally, about noism. Right? It's not just about saying no to people or uh-huh. no randomly to things. By no. the
0: way, noism wouldn't have been nearly as catchy. <laughs> just in I case appreciate you appreciate that. That's my little In case advice I think about you. another book later. <laughs> yeah. um,
1: and, and, and so, what it's about is creating space uh-huh. to think, hmm. to ask the hard questions, the big questions. So coming back to the...
0: Which truly is rather than reactive, proactive. It right? is. So rather mm-hmm. than just being in responsive mode to actually stop and pull yourself back, that's the creating the space. It is. And intentionally thinking through it rather than just so quickly responding, reacting.
1: This is exactly right. So what can you do to create space? And, and I already mentioned one idea, but, but I'm going to keep on it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, please. A personal quarterly offsite. Okay. See, everybody wants, a little ironically... What are the ten things you need to do to become an essentialist? Right? They want a list of a right. ton of things. I want more stuff. They want more things. <laughs> and and actually, the book does have a whole set of suggestions of what they can do. Uh, you know, how to say no in a savvy way. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, to negotiate non-essentials, all sorts of things. But in the end, there's one thing. Uh, it's taken me a long time to get to it. It's this personal quarterly offsite. Every 90 days. Okay. You take a day. You evaluate what you've been doing the last 90 days. You have what I call uh, the most important hour of your life, which is you go through a set of questions, I'll mention those in a moment, and you then set your very few goals for the next 90 days to make sure that you're in alignment with what you really want to do ultimately mm-hmm. with your life. Uh, and this is it. And so actually when people ask, as people almost always do for, okay, that's a good suggestion, give me the next one. I just say, <laughs> no, Go back <laughs> to this is, <laughs> this is it, just actually do it. Don't go, oh, that's an interesting, curious idea. Do it, schedule every it, prepare days. for it every 90 days. It
0: doesn't mean you have to jump on a plane and go somewhere, but it just doesn't. one day off yeah. you could do it anywhere.
2: You could. So the idea is this is an opportunity for you to poke your head above the clouds, kind of get some perspective about your life and where it's going.
0: That's right. And this is, just to make sure that we're very clear, and if you could speak to this, this isn't a day where you go and you catch up on email and you, I mean, it's it's a think day.
1: Oh, yes, it's completely... It's not it's, a task it's, it's, day. It's, a, it's a digital free day. Okay. Uh, very important. It is important. So, so as with any quarterly offsite, you imagine leaders inside of companies, we would expect them to have quarterly offsites mm-hmm. to think about the strategy and overall perspective of the company. In fact, we would say it was their fiduciary responsibility. If they're not doing that, they are doing something mm-hmm. really uh-huh. wrong. And yet in our own lives, how many of us are applying that same logic to what we do? When was the last time you know, you had a personal quarterly offsite, <laughs> um, right? Yes, it's uh, it's hard to do this. Yeah. It's hard to apply to, it's hard because it's not a, a norm,
3: mm-hmm. but it could be. Mm.
1: Uh, and so my whole, so, so how do you make a quarterly offsite successful? You prepare for it, okay. you don't just turn up. Mm-hmm. So I keep a journal, I mean, really faithfully, every single day, keep a journal. And in that, I'm writing what's going on, what am I thankful for, what are the most important memories that I've made, a whole series of questions. And so I bring that to the personal quarterly of offset. So the first thing I'm doing is ev- just reviewing. Where am I? Mm-hmm. Reviewing
0: the 90 days before? Yes. Okay.
1: Yes. W- what is the news in my life?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, you know, am I focused on the things that really matter most to me? Where am I? Spending my time and resources.
0: You're basically being an investigator of your own life.
1: Exactly. A journalist.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was uh, just going to say uh-huh. journalist too. That's exactly. what I'm thinking.
1: And, and, and you can carry that metaphor through because the idea is first to be a journalist and then ultimately after the personal quarterly offsite is to become an editor. Mm-hmm. Uh, or maybe that's really the metaphor for the time that you're there. What's the news? And then number two, okay, what's really essential? Uh, so, I mean, you can break that down in a few ways. One is to uh, simply say, what are the three most important goals for my life? Hmm. Um, until you've answered those questions, all of the other questions of prioritization uh, are unanswerable yeah. because uh, you have to have a, a, a somewhere to anchor that question to, what is ultimately most important to me? And then from there, you can work back, okay, uh-huh. well, therefore, what do you want to do over the next uh-huh. 10 years, five years? And ultimately, you have a 90-day plan.
2: What's the role of your calendar in that as you're prospectively looking to the next quarter, the next 90 days.
1: Yeah, I think that there's two two elements. One is I, I suggest people actually print up their, their calendar from the last 90 days, okay. uh, whether they have a journal or not. If they don't have a journal, it's totally required uh, so that they have some sense of where have I been, what is my time uh, you know, being spent on currently? Uh-huh. And then same thing. You then review the next 90 days and say, look, what am I already committed to? What's on mm-hmm. here? And are these the things that really are essential or are they no longer the thing I should be doing and, and to uncommit from things. That, okay. I uh, want to ask you about this. Yes, This is
2: really important because you'll know, say you're reviewing, you've got these goals. You realize that for whatever reason, maybe it was your own lack of clarity or it was an assistant not doing their job or whatever, but you're now, you're, now all of a sudden your calendar is populated with non-essential items. Right. What are your
1: options in that situation?
0: Oh, that's a good question. Yeah. I mean,
1: let me just give you one rule of thumb that I found helpful, uh, because sometimes essentialism can be seen as, uh, can be misunderstood as uh, being less helpful, mm-hmm. less service-oriented, and mm-hmm. I don't believe that at all. I think it's about being the most helpful, making the greatest contribution you possibly can uh-huh. with yeah. your life. So, that's the justification for changing anything that's on the calendar or anything you've previously committed mm-hmm. to. I find it helpful, for example, to have one day give back a month where I schedule. So if I have requests, or could you, whatever. Mm-hmm. I do the same thing. So you have, but but it's, it's it's bounded so that it isn't every request you get that would be helpful to someone you say yes to. You say yes, and this is the amount of time. And once that's filled, you can move it on to the next month. Um, so I think as soon as you realize that something's on the calendar that really shouldn't be, especially if you're planning in a 90-day cycle, you have some time to uncommit from it and to simply let people know, you know what, I, I signed up for this. I don't think I could do a great job for you. Uh, I, I could do it, but I think it's not the very best way for me to be able to help you. What I can do instead is this. This person mm-hmm. could help instead, or just—it's just no longer a fit for me. Now, does that create a withdrawal in the relationship? Yes. But but but, but not essentialism. A, yeah, go ahead. i uh, No, I was going
0: to say there's a payment. There's a there's a cost regardless. So you're choosing there what is. you're choosing what bill you're going to uh, you're going to acquire. I it, mean that's
1: if one was going to write the. Uh, sort of manifesto for a non-essentialist life, Uh at the top of that would be pretend there are no trade-offs. Yes. This is huge. Because if there's no trade-offs, you can say yes to everything, and Uh that's fine. Uh But there are trade-offs, and we didn't get to choose those rules. Those rules are permanent, eternal. We live with them. So now the choice is what are the right trade-offs to make? Yes. And suddenly you are in the role of a strategist in your life, Uh, an essentialist, saying... Of these trade-offs, which is the strategic tr- choice I want to make? Now,
2: mm-hmm. here's where I get hung up in this. Like, let's say I've made a commitment; it's 60 days out. I've given my word to this. This is how I kind of invest I, I it, the same. with this whole sense of <laughs> yeah. integrity. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I don't have any problem trying to negotiate out of it or provide an alternative. But if the other person says, "No, I really want to want you to do it," and I've committed to it and they've planned on that, that I feel like I have to follow through. Next time, I'll be smarter. But I got to fulfill
1: the commitment. Yeah, I think this is important. I mean, essentialism is not somehow trying to pretend that integrity doesn't matter. It does matter, and mm-hmm. I think that I think there are times. Absolutely, we've made a commitment, and we will be there because we said we would. I think you can always negotiate, and we ought yes. to remember that. Uh, but if it really is a problem, and if we really have given our word, of course this we're do this it. is important yes. too. But we have to learn the lesson. Yeah. It's very cheap in life to say yes. We just learn our lessons from this, but we don't necessarily learn the lessons. The lesson is every time someone asks us for something, we put in a buffer, let me get back to you. Let me think about that. And then we get good and preparing and going back to people and saying, look, it's a great opportunity. It's a wonderful thing you've asked me and I'm very honored, but I just don't think I can sign up for it Mm -hmm. right now. I just don't think I can do a great job for you right now Mm -hmm. on this. There's other commitments I already have and we've got to get really strong in that. And I think often we are not at all strong in doing that. No.
2: Because it's easier to go the, with the flow, and especially if you're a recovering people pleaser, right. like I am, and I know Michelle yes. is, um, to say no. And I, I, I don't have so much trouble saying no to my friends, because actually I want to say yes to them, so that's, I want more of that in my life. But it's these kind of people that are in the middle. They're not total strangers, but I have some affiliation or connection mm-hmm. with them. They make a request that if you look at it in isolation from the context of my life— Perfectly reasonable, right? It's not a big request, right? It's just to put a hundred of those things together, and my whole life goes that direction.
1: Yeah, and and so there's the hundred thing problem you just described, but there's also just the planning fallacy. The planning fallacy is is well established in in the literature as a as a sort of almost oh, universal human uh, uh-huh. you know weakness, which is that we underestimate the time things yes. will take to do. Oh goodness! And I mean, think how how hmm. rare is it that you take on a Project, a task, a request, and it was completed faster than you thought. Uh, well, I don't never, never. <laughs> <I'm laughs> try <trying> to think <laughs> if in the that's range ever of happens. never. Uh-huh. It com- compared to the number of times it takes longer, it always takes longer, yes. and that's the thing you have to remember: the total, uh, the total cost of ownership mm-hmm. yeah. of any mm-hmm. request that comes your way, and to say, look, how long does it really take to do that one yes. keynote, that one uh, recording, that one meeting, that one? It's not one. That one podcast. It's not. Yeah, right. Right, Exactly. What am I thinking? Um, No, you you really do have to be as thoughtful as possible. Now, the key, the key I'll say again, is not to get better at saying no, although that can be helpful. The key is not uh, to even be better at negotiating, even though that can be helpful. It's to create space Mm -hmm. to get to clarity about what is essential. It's creating space. That's the real habit that we have to develop, and that's why I come back again and again to the personal quarterly offsite. Okay, so keep really
2: is key. I want to go back to this buffer idea, though, because I think there's there's something in here that that I need to hear, and that I'm sure our listeners need to hear. Mm. So you get a request,
1: mm-hmm.
2: you're not quick to respond. You're going to give yourself a little space so you can think about it, consult a larger context before you reply.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, the
2: quarterly review, obviously. Hugely helpful for But that.
0: you've memorized kind of a go-to phrase when you get a request. Let me get back with you. Let me have some time and think about it. I'll get back with you.
1: Yeah. I mean, I learned this from somebody um, who was so hungry to serve that they would go to church and everyone would come up with them because they knew there was somebody that would get stuff done. Yes. And they would say, look, can you do this thing? And they would say, yes. And one person after another would come to them and give them. Their, you know, extra piece of clothing to put in the closet. And they would say yes. And they'd come home and they'd go, this is crazy. I've got children. I've got life. I've got, And I've just I signed up was- for all these people because I believed I was doing something right. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, I mean, the principle is some, doing something that is good is not good enough. That's mm-hmm. not sufficiently a, a selective criteria for what we do in our lives. And this is when she learned this simple lesson, which was... Uh, you know, just pause, let me check my calendar and I'll get back to you. Yeah. And the pause allowed them in sometimes the days necessary to think about it and then figure out what they could and couldn't do. So yes, I think this is a critical part of creating space. So helpful. One of the
2: things that the book helped um, me to do too was reframe this idea of a trade-off is it's not really about saying no to certain things, but it's really about being very clear about what I want to say yes to. Yeah. Because it, you can't do one without the other.
1: You can't do one without the other. And, and so I didn't ever intend to write a book that was about uh, courage, uh, but in the end, it is about internal clarity and courage mm-hmm. compared to external social pressure. Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. This is what it comes mm-hmm. down to.
1: And and I, I want to sort of elevate our conversation even one step further by saying that this, is, this principle isn't just, certainly not just a time management thing or certainly not just a professional thing. This is like, this is the life principle, mm-hmm. right? At the end of our lives, we have regrets. And those that have gathered any sort of data on those regrets find some pretty interesting patterns. Uh, so Bronnie Ware, the Australian nurse who, mm-hmm. uh, who, who gathered uh-huh. you know, a set of interviews, what was the number one regret of the dying? It was living a life that others expected of me rather than a life that mm, was true so to the voice within. Nobody set a goal to do that. Nobody intended to have mm-hmm. that regret. Number two regret, we're spending too much time at work, not enough time with family mm-hmm. and those that matter most. Yeah. OK, nobody ever set a goal for that regret either. And so we have an interesting situation where people, smart, driven, intelligent people, find themselves in a position they never intended to get to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's something that should be sobering to us because they were just as smart as us, as thoughtful as us, caring as much as we care. And still found themselves yeah. where they didn't mean to be—a strategic endpoint that was not intentional. And so you have to somehow attach your daily planning process, your daily reflection process, process to that end game mm-hmm. state, where you say, well, "On my deathbed, what will I hope I did today?" And uh, and I think there are a few things you can do to try and get in the uh, in, in range of that.
0: Fantastic. So. Uh... So I would say most of our listeners at this point are saying, here, here, I'm with you. I agree, right? Most people are here and I go, that's the kind of life I want to live. Right. But uh, good intentions have, you know, like they only take us so far. Right. And, and I'm sure even as you've been living this out over the last few years, you've hit a couple walls at times where you're like good intentions and you don't always kind of follow through on what you intend on. So what is the key to getting us to actually move forward beyond thinking this is a good concept and actually start living this out? How do we get over that hump?
1: Okay, so right now, listeners right now, as they're listening to this, as they're watching this, mm-hmm. they should, in whatever way they want, pause it and uh, and text somebody. Uh, maybe that sounds a little funny after everything we said about digital <laughs> overdose. But t- text somebody or call them. Uh, somehow yes. reach out and say, I want us, you and I, to schedule a personal quarterly off-site okay and let's plan for that where we're going to go let's go somewhere that's meaningful somewhere maybe in nature uh it doesn't have to be expensive but just somewhere out go mm-hmm. to the beach go to wherever whatever the the, the, the place mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. uh out to the woods and uh and we're going to ask a series of questions and really evaluate where we are where we want to be and the very few things that are going to invest be invested in, in the mm-hmm. next 90 days I, I really still think it comes back to that. So, but I, but I think you need the social positive peer pressure,
0: the kind of accountability it. or partnership, partnership in the in the journey. Oh, that's good. That's really great, good. great advice. Okay, I have one final question for you before we wrap up today, and this is personal. So, Michael and I are both authors. So we know that a book takes years to write. We live with the content. We wrestle with it, and. Uh, uh, and so I want to ask you, to be completely honest, do you still continue to follow these principles? Do you do the quarterly um, getaway yourself? Yeah. And have you gained any new insights or new perspectives as you've been wrestling with this process yourself and living it out?
1: Yeah, uh, that's, uh, just, there's loads of thoughts in my mind about that. The first at risk of overemphasizing this personal quarterly offsite idea, that isn't in the book at all. So that suggestion, that idea, isn't in there. It that came just, as a result. It of has. You it's grown it. out of both what I have done and also what I now see as this essential thing for me to be doing mm. to deal with all the additional things. So yes. yeah, you bet. This book suddenly you have far more opportunities coming your way than you had uh-huh. before. Lots of people asking, okay, what's the next book? Uh, which incidentally the answer is maybe there won't be one. Right? Uh-huh. I am not assuming there will be. Um, so l- lots of people uh, wanting you to do training. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. because that would be helpful. And suddenly you have all these different business opportunities. And and, and I've been wrestling so hard with these things. And I'll yes, bet. doing the personal quarterly offset. So we've said, no, we're not doing training. No, we're not going to do all these things. Saying no to all sorts of uh, keynote opportunities that just aren't exactly the right fit for us. Um, what we have concluded we're going to do professionally, and I know what the next big thing is, um, and that is we're going to have a group of really um selectively picked uh, early adopters of essentialism who will come together for a class, I suppose uh, a forum, a fellowship every ninety days for a year. Oh wow, oh, I love that. In Silicon Valley, really handpicked select people, and then we'll you know we'll see how that goes and maybe we'll maybe we'll do two or three of those you know uh, through the course of next year. This is the one thing we want to do. We think we'll learn a lot through the process. Uh, We think we'll Mm. still have an impact on, if you choose the right people, Mm -hmm. make a big impact beyond the group Mm -hmm. in that room, that they can be uh, the evangelists for what they learn to their communities, Mm -hmm. to their influence groups. And and suddenly I can see this being something that makes a little dent in, Mm -hmm. in the universe. Uh, So this is the this is the change
0: some culture, which is really what we we need to do.
1: Yeah, so
0: I'm assuming that it's still a struggle at times for you too. it's a process because like you say on the book, it's the disciplined pursuit of less. So you're still disciplining yourself. You're still pursuing the essentialist life
1: all the time. Uh, So so to me, it is a serious to me, it is a serious challenge. I don't think, I don't think of myself in any of this conversation as holier than thou with anybody mm-hmm, else mm-hmm. Uh, I am in the trenches I, as you knew I have four, uh, mentioned four children right uh-huh. my, my good wife we uh, Anna we, uh, w- I was just asked uh, recently to do uh, to, to sort of be the uh, the, the unpaid uh, pastor of my church for the next five or six years right that's a lot a uh-huh. lot and it tests your essentialist muscles yes to figure out how you can try to make the highest contribution without becoming a uh-huh. hypocrite to uh-huh. the principle involved. But what I what I believe is that as you grapple with it every single day, mm-hmm. you can do a lot better than a reactive mm. approach. That's mm-hmm. encouraging. Mm-hmm. It is encouraging. Uh, to me it is, and and I think it's possible. So so there's all sorts of safeguards that you can put into your life, boundaries. Um, I have a boundary a certain set times on Sunday that I will be with my family no matter what mm-hmm. yes. anyone else's needs and issues are. And I make a, a lot of work goes into supporting the different people that are asking for time, but there's uh-huh. a set time that we're there. Monday nights is exclusively family time, mm. and date night every Friday night uh, and Saturday night. Um, there are things that you can do, mm. permanent uh, boundaries that you can put into your essential routine uh, that I think help to make this help. as effortless as possible. yes. Um, yeah.
0: But still hard, Terrific. still a pursuit, but you can help do that. Yeah. Uh, perhaps my uh, what I love most about having this time with you today, Greg, is that you know Michael and I have read so many books. We've interviewed so many different authors, talked about different, different resources that are out there. But this really is not just a book for you. It's a life work. And I think that's what inspires mm. me more than anything is it's not just a book that you're selling. Mm. Uh, it, it, it's, it's just not. This is really, truly what you have been called, the message you've been called to deliver. And you're doing everything you can to get it out there because you believe in it. And that's really what resonates with me. And I'm so thankful that you invested, that this was one of your essential things is to mm. pursue this message and get it out there. So thank you for that.
1: Yeah. And, and if, I if you just don't mind, that's the very point is that essentialism isn't one more thing to mm-hmm. try to stuff into our already overstuffed positive mm. of our lives. It is the very work of our lives. Mm-hmm. This is it. To answer the question, what's important now? every moment and to keep coming back to it, that is hard work, Mm -hmm. that is seriously hard work, but that is the most important work of our whole lives. And I think if you, you know, back to this regrets on your deathbed, we will regret certain things, but if we decide today to become essentialists, that will not be one of the things we regret at that moment in our lives. Exactly right. So the question is, on that day, on the very final day of our lives, what will we hope we decided to do on this one? powerful. Great way to end.
0: Well, if you enjoyed today's conversation, you can find a full transcript and show notes at michaelhyatt.com. In addition, if you'd like to watch the video rather than just listening, we will have the entire video available at michaelhyatt.com. And can you do us a favor? Uh, I would love for you to head over to iTunes and rate the program. This is huge for us. And it's really the only way to get this content into the hands of as many people as possible. We'd really appreciate it. So Michael, any final thoughts today?
2: I have one thought. One call to action, and that is go buy the book Essentialism by Greg McKeown. Uh, I recently wrote a post of my 10 favorite books of all time. Mm-hmm. This one made the list. Mm-hmm. And it's because it's had such a radical impact on me. I've made some very tough decisions, as you know, this past year uh, to disentangle myself from a lot of things that are good things, uh-huh. that are worthwhile things, but things that are I no longer regard as essential.
0: Greg, thank you for being with us today. You have truly honored us by uh, taking time to be here, and we are changed because of it. Thank you.
3: thank you. Michael, thank you. And to
0: the rest of you for listening and watching, thank you for being with us today. And until next time, remember, your life is a gift. Do what matters.